All right. Well, remain standing, and let's take our Bibles and turn this morning to Romans chapter 12. Chapter 12. We're going to uh, once again read uh, from Romans chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 9 through the end of the chapter this morning. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. This is God's word to us this morning. Let us give heed to it. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing, so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word is indeed precious to us. We thank you for it. We thank you for this passage that we are looking at this morning. And we we ask, Lord, that as, as we spend a few moments on this passage, that you will that you will work through your spirit in us to to help us, Lord, to to love one another as we should, to to live within the the context of our church family as you would have us to do. We thank you for those that you have given to us that we may worship and serve alongside of and with, and we pray that you would grow us as a congregation, even through these words that we look at this morning. We thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning we're going to continue our look at chapter 12 of Romans. Now, in this chapter, if you will recall, Paul is beginning to apply all of the doctrine that he gave us in the first 11 chapters of this book. And he begins here with the the admonition in chapter 12, he began with the admonition that we are to present our lives to him. Every day, in every way, we are to present our lives to God as a continual living sacrifice of thanksgiving that we offer up to Him, a sacrifice of gratitude to God for the mercies that He has shown to to us, to you, in, in forgiving and justifying you through the life and the death of His Son. And to do that, Paul said, by by not allowing ourselves to be conformed to the world, by resisting that constant temptation, that constant pull 
to conform ourselves to this world. But we are told not to fall in with the world and not to make its values our values. Not to consider its priorities to be our priorities because as Christians, as people of the kingdom of God, our priorities are diametrically opposed in so many ways to those of the world. And so we are not to be conformed to the world, but Paul says we are to be transformed rather. Transformed, changed in every aspect of our lives through and beginning with the renewal, he said, remember, of our mind through the agency of the Word of God, we are to be renewed. And then after discussing the, the, in verses 3 through 8 the context of the, the gifts of the Spirit being exercised in the body of Christ, in verses 9 through 21, he is giving us instructions for that living sacrifice that we are to give, that we are to be. Twenty-five instructions we saw are, are before us. Instructions of, of how we are to be living sacrifices before God. Last time we made it through verse 12 and today, so then we're going to pick up from verse 13. But before we get started there in verse 13, let me remind you of Paul's beginning exhortation here in this list. His heading that he gives to us for this whole section. He gives it to us at the beginning of verse 9. It was also our first instruction that we looked at. And it is, let love be genuine. Remember, everything else in this chapter is an expression of that, is working that out, is, is describing in more detail how we do that, how we love one another genuinely. And I say one another because the focus of much of these instructions that he gives is how we interact with members of our congregation, with other members of the church. He says our love, which we are to show, is a love, first of all, that we have first received. We have received the greatest love in the world, haven't we? That great love with which he loved us, Paul says in Ephesians. And that love is expressed, Paul says, our love is expressed as we echo the love of God that has been given to us, we echo it to one another. That love is expressed, Paul said, in the other instructions. The second instruction was by abhorring what is evil. The third was in holding fast to what is good. The fourth was loving one another with brotherly affection. As surely and as intensely as we love our natural family, we are to love our church family. And number five, to do that in competing, to show one another honor, to put the focus on others and not on me. And in doing so, the sixth instruction was to to not, not like a sloth, not slothfully, but the seventh instruction was zealously, And fervently to do this, boiling over, remember, in serving one another. And in that way, the eighth instruction was that we are to serve the Lord. The ninth instruction was that by rejoicing always in the the hope that we have in God and His promises, that we display that love. Number ten was, was by being patient in the necessary and unavoidable trials of this life. 
with a biblical view of those trials and where they come from and what they mean. And number 11, we are to do that by being constant in prayer. Finding prayer to be our first resort and not our last resort when troubles come. Well, now this morning then we're going to pick up there and we're going to continue to work through these instructions. Again, there's no outline in your bulletin because the outline is just the instructions that we come up against. They're very short, they're very terse, they're very brief in this, the manner that Paul is using here to give these. And so they're short enough to themselves be our outline. But I want to do something here a little different and take the rest of these in a little bit different order, or really just to group them differently. Because in this chapter, as Paul gives these these short, rapid-fire instructions to us without elaboration, he just gives them, uh, using a specific kind of instruction here, Um, he jumps between commands regarding how we love one another and how we are to deal with people outside of the church. And I just want to group those together. All all of the ones we looked at last week had to do with the relationship that we have with one another. And so today we're going to keep going with that aspect. And we'll look at those and we'll skip over. There's one here uh, right at the beginning here that has to do, because Paul goes back and forth. And so we'll skip over and just deal with the ones today that have to do with how we love one another And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the the ones dealing with how we deal and how we relate to those outside of the church. So the next five that he's going to give us that we're going to look at all have to do with sharing with one another. Children, you know how important it is to share. I'm sure your parents have told you that many times. You've learned that sharing is caring. But sharing in these things is very important in the church for young people and for us older people, us less young people. The first one, and this is our 12th instruction here that Paul gives, it's in verse 13, is that we are to contribute, he says, to the needs of the saints. As we love one another, Loving our church family, again, as much as we love our natural family, because they are as close to us as our natural family, maybe even closer. We are called to share in the needs of our fellow Christians. Back in verses 3 through 8, as Paul was teaching on the subject of the spiritual gifts in the church, he taught us that the one who contributes must do so with generosity. And that flows over to what we all are to do, whether we are those that are particularly gifted and equipped by God to be able to give uh, above and beyond. We are all to contribute, he says, to the needs of the saints. And notice that that he is talking here about how we deal and, and share with people within our congregation or outside of our congregation, but certainly Christians. He refers to the fact that we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. These are our brothers and sisters. These are fellow Christians. If there is a need, particularly within our congregation, and we know of that need, we are to give toward the meeting of that need. We are not to let needs, genuine needs in the congregation go unmet. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. 
if you have opportunity, if you have the ability to meet the needs of someone in your church, Paul's saying, do it. Let that be part of the way you show sincere love. Insincere love does what? Insincere love says, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, sister. Be warm and filled and go your way. That's what insincere love does. Sincere love contributes to the needs, meets the needs. Now do notice that he says that we are to contribute to the needs. I can't expect you and you shouldn't expect me to help with one another's extravagances. But if you have a need, if I have, it, if I have a need, we should be able to count on one another to help the New Testament church, as it's recorded, especially in the book of Acts, was known for this. In Acts chapter 6, we talked a little bit about deacons this morning before service. In Acts chapter 6, which was sort of the, the beginning of the, the work of the diaconate, there was at that time a, a daily distribution to the widows in the church to meet their needs from what the congregation had collected. In Acts chapter 4, Luke says that there was not a needy person among them, among those in the church. Why? Well, because they looked out to do what was necessary to contribute to the means of the saints. We could also look at Paul. A good, the context of a good portion of Paul's travels is taken up as he went around and made collection for the needs of the saints in the persecuted church in Jerusalem. He, in 2 Corinthians especially, speaks of the importance and the blessedness of helping other saints that are in need. Speaking again of of deacons in the church, a large part of the, the, the work of the deacons in the church is to handle the collections and then the distribution of, of those needs, to deal with those needs. But our job, each and every person in this con- congregation, their job is to contribute to the needs of the saints. You can do that personally. You can do that through, we mentioned at the beginning of service that we're going to be taking our quarterly collection for our benevolence fund. The benevolence fund in this congregation is particularly to help those in our church who have a need. Overseen by, right now, the elders, hopefully soon a deacon, to help to identify needs and to take what is put into that fund and then to help contribute to the needs of the saints. And we should all be contributing to that as well. The word translated contribute here is the verb form of the word koinonia that many of you know. It means, it means to share in. It means to participate in. So let us, beloved, participate in the needs of one another. So that's the first aspect of our sharing, is that we are to share our material goods with those who are in need. Along with that, there in verse 13, Paul says, seek to show hospitality. That's the 13th. Instruction, seek to show hospitality. Now, this one might surprise you a little bit. We usually think of hospitality as referring to those in the church who are willing to uh, and gifted to, to host 
a Bible study or have church members over to, to their house for lunch after church. Both very important things, don't, don't get me wrong, both very important things to do in the life of a church, but that's not the idea here of hospitality. In the day that Paul wrote this, in the first century, there were not, as we see here and throughout our world, there were not hotels on every corner. Airbnb was still a few years from being a thing. And the boarding houses that did exist were typically pretty dicey affairs. Dangerous. They just weren't very, well, they weren't very hospitable to travelers. Especially very often to Christians who were in very many places in the world at that time not well liked because of their stand on worship, their stand against idolatry, their stand on moral issues. And to that we might add that the boarding houses that were safe and comfortable uh, were often very expensive. And for those reasons, as Paul writes here, the, the situation with Christians who traveled, with missionaries who traveled, that they had to, as Blanche Dubois did, had to rely on the kindness of strangers, specifically strangers in the church, to take them in and to give them shelter and lodging and feed them. And that's what this idea of hospitality is about. This is more about opening our home to other fellow Christians whom we may not even know if we have opportunity to do it. Hebrews 13.2 sort of makes this clearer when it says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby, you know the rest, some have attained angels unaware, like Abraham did, like Gideon did. But again, this is not to detract from the importance of the kind of thing that we think of as hospitality within and among the members of the church. Both are important. But Paul is saying, be, be ready to open your, your home. So the number 12, we share our material goods. Number 13, we share our homes. We come to number 14 now that says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here we, re- we share in others' situations. First, number 14 is rejoice with those who rejoice. The unity of the church is a a wonderful thing, a remarkable thing. To consider the fact that we have family that we have never even met. And probably will never meet until we meet them in heaven. But the unity of the local church is also amazing. We have a, a family reunion every Sunday. And hopefully it is more pleasant than many of the family reunions that you have been to at other places. I would, if I was a wagering man, I would wager that's the case. Here, Paul again is speaking of the sincerity of the love that we have for one another. He says, share in their joy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Praise God together for for what God does when we see Him particularly blessing someone. Let us join right in with them in rejoicing, in thanking God. 
and being uh, thankful for what God has done for them. You know, sometimes we read that whole verse, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, and we think that, that this is the easier part, to rejoice with those who rejoice. But, but maybe not so much. Sometimes it's more difficult to be genuinely, sincerely happy for the, the good and the advancement and the blessing of others, especially if you are not experiencing such goodness or advancement or blessing. Sometimes it's easier to be genuinely sad for someone's misfortune than to be genuinely happy for their good fortune, for God's blessing them. Because our old friends, envy and jealousy, are always lurking to jump in when we hear about the blessings received by another person, by another family, by another church. And to rejoice with them to share in that, that bounty that they have received without an added side dish of sour grapes can be a struggle. But that's our call. To let love, again, be genuine. And it requires us to rejoice in the good fortune, the good blessing received by others, to see God's hand at work in the lives of others, and to say, I rejoice with you, brother. I rejoice with you, sister. And, of course, along with that, then, is number 15, the end of the verse. Weep with those who weep. We sing, I think we sang it last week, Blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love. Part of that song says, We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. The sympathizing tears. Sympathy, this is, that's what this is about. Both of these, 14 and 15, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Sympathy for one another is what this verse is about. Sympathizing with one another in both their highs and their lows. Remember, a family situation is what we are in as part of the congregation. And right along with the instruction that that we are to rejoice in the blessing given to others is the instruction that we, in sincere, genuine love for our brothers and sisters, share closely and deeply in their sadness and their loss. And as we do so, remember verse 13 said, to contribute to the needs. If there's a way we can alleviate their suffering, alleviate their, their sadness, we're to do it as we show sincere, genuine love to one another. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and 26, Paul tells us that God's design is that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's the gist of these two instructions for us. Because it's the unity of the church, it's the unity of the family that is the church that is being brought before us, that when we hear of another member being blessed, we rejoice with them, and when we hear of pain or struggle or loss in another member, that their pain is our pain. If one member suffers, Paul said, all suffer together. The author of Hebrews sort of nails this down even more when he goes so far as to say, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. 
You know, there he sort of crosses over from sympathy to empathy. Sympathy is me standing on the outside and looking at your condition and, and feeling for you. Empathy is me feeling with you, me entering into your situation. We are to have both. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We are the body of Christ, one body. When one is exalted, we all give thanks. When one is in pain, when one is weeping, when one is in sorrow, we join with them. On to number 16, that helpfully is in verse number 16. It says, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. Christians worshiping, serving, living, as it were, together with a common mind, a common purpose, is instrumental to the proper functioning of the church, just like it is in our body. Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 12, the the Hand can't say, well, I don't need the foot, I don't need the eye. If you've got the body working against each other and not working together, not in harmony with all of the other members, things don't work right in our bodies and they won't work right in the church. Dissension within a congregation, mark this, dissension within a congregation is absolutely one of the most dangerous things in a church. And one of the most displeasing to the one who bought the church with his blood. Paul ends his second letter to the Corinthian church with these words. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, he says. In the letter to the Philippians. In that letter, unity is front and center of what Paul is talking about, one of the major topics of that book. In Philippians 2.2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's what he's saying here when he says live in harmony with one another. In Philippians, he also prays that they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel working together, being in harmony. He appeals at the end of that letter, towards the end of that letter, to two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, who were apparently unwilling to, to live in harmony with one another. And he appeals to the church to help them to do that. So important is this. Peter also shares his concern for this in the church. In 1 Peter 3.8, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Now, there, as here, the command and the expectation is not for us to saying that we have to walk in lockstep with everyone, with everything that we think, but that even when there are disagreements, that we continue to demonstrate love that is genuine to one another. In fact, this phrase, live in harmony with one another, is literally saying, think the same thing toward one another. And it refers not really to thinking the same thing around one another or thinking the same thing as one another, though being of the same mind on essential teachings, of course, is critical. But the idea here is to think the same thing toward one another. 
Have the same attitude towards one another and them towards you, regardless of who they are, regardless of their social status or their age or their position or their sex. Think toward one another in ways that promote unity. That's what we're to do. Be of the same mind. Paul says, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. Because we are united in Christ, let us show it in the way that we act towards one another. So we share our material goods, we share our homes, we share in each other's ups and downs, and we share in the unity that we have in Christ. One church, one body, one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. And the biggest enemy to to all of this among God's people is pride. And so Paul addresses that in this next instruction, number 17. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be haughty. The command here is really the same as it was back in verse 3 of chapter 12, that each and every one of us is not to think too highly of himself. In order to live in harmony with one another, as we just saw, to think the same thing toward our brothers and sisters in the church, of course it is necessary for every manifestation of sinful pride to be removed. This is so important. There is... No place to be given to pride in the church. Paul told the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. The word haughty means, first of all, it means tall or high. And so it also comes to mean to have a high opinion of oneself. A haughty person person sees himself as above others. And as a result, he looks down on others. Where is the place for that in the church? Where is the place for that in a place, in a situation where, where all are sinners? All are saved by grace. All are adopted by God through Christ. All are on the road to the celestial city along the same path, having come through the same narrow gate. All are absolutely, totally dependent on the grace of God. All are debtors to mercy. All are called to be servants of one another as the head of the church himself came not to be served, but to serve. In chapter 3 of Romans in verse 27, Paul asks the question, where then is boasting? And he says, it is excluded. Boasting must be excluded in the church. Pride must be excluded in the church. We have no reason for pride. Any pride we have is a false pride. Because what do we have that we have not been given? Each and every one of us 
from the oldest to the youngest, from the most seasoned saint in the church to the new believer. Pride needs to go away. Paul's saying, don't be haughty. Don't be a snob. Don't be stuck up in regard to others. Put to death the tendency to think that you are better than others. Beloved, as we seek to love one another, sinner to sinner, saint to saint, we are to let that love be genuine and never to set ourselves on any kind of a pedestal. What did we look at last week? That love is not arrogant. Love does not insist on its own way. And we are never to think ourselves better than anyone else. But even to associate, he says, with the lowly. Now that that phrase there, associate with the lowly, is an interesting phrase, an interesting word, lowly there. It can refer to either people or to things, to tasks. And both are true. If Paul's referring to people, then it says... Don't make, don't create, don't allow divisions in the church based on class or any of those other things that we list. Nothing. Don't think of yourself as above anyone, but associate with everyone. No one is below you. As we saw above, just as no one is above you. And if Paul is referring then to things, then he's saying don't think of yourself too good to do the menial tasks. No one. As the pastor of this church, I'm not above any task that needs to be done in the church. That's something that I always remember. I was impressed on me back before I started seminary when I was in a class at a church for those who felt that they had a calling to the ministry. One of the things, the first things that the the instructor had us do, he says, I want you each to go because it was a bunch of people from different churches says, I want you to go to the janitor of your church and volunteer to clean the bathrooms of the church for the next month. Just to show us that ministry means service. I'm not above that. I've done it here. I'm not above it. You shouldn't be above it. Never say, never think, I'm too good to do X. In fact, let's look briefly at one of the most powerful illustrations of this concept of humility before others in a way that really combines these two aspects, whether it's um, humility regarding persons or regarding tasks. Turn over to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, first I'm just going to read beginning in verse 3, a couple of verses here. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, this is the last supper, he laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You've heard this. People in that day walking, they'd just come from Bethany with sandals on. Their feet would be dirty. 
and they would expect their feet to, to be washed. That was part of the hospitality that would be shown to someone. It was an expected function of the host. It was a very menial thing. Typically one of the lowest of the servants of the house would do that. But here it had not been done. Apparently everything was prepared for it to be done, but no one had done it. One of the disciples should have done this. But if you remember, they had more recently been discussing something much more important, which one of them was the greatest. So none of them would stoop to do this. In verses 6 through 11 here of John 13, 13, uh, in in Jesus' interaction here with Peter, Jesus reveals a, a second meaning, a deeper meaning to this idea of washing the disciples' feet, which is really outside of what we're wanting to see here. But look beginning at verse 12. Jesus says, when he had washed, or or, sorry, John writes, that when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. So very exalted titles there. Uh, You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus tells them plainly that that the humility of this act is to be instructive to them. And it's illustrative of both aspects of what Paul is saying here. In regard to Jesus, who is teacher and Lord, to his disciples, that was an act of humility. And the fact that he washed their feet was meant that he was willing to do menial tasks to show them. It's an example to Jesus' followers. We need to be servants to one another. We need to be willing to do the menial tasks, the lowest tasks. We need to be willing to inconvenience ourselves in order to serve others. We should be as at home in the background as we serve as we would be in the visible ministries of the church. Let us, Paul is saying, be humble people, not thinking ourselves above anyone else and not thinking ourselves too good to perform any service, any job in in the church to serve one another. And then Paul concludes this verse with yet another instruction concerning how we are to think of ourselves. Still in verse 16, he says, Never be wise in your own sight. That's an almost direct quote from Proverbs 3, 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, it says. Now, he says there, do not be wise in your own sight. I want you to notice something. Paul does not say, do not be wise. Wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom is an important thing. Wisdom is a necessary thing. We are to be wise. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge for a specific purpose, to a specific end. Knowledge is like the raw materials, we might say. Knowledge is the wood and the the steel and the screws and the nails. Wisdom, then, is the ability to take those things and make a house out of them. Wisdom applies knowledge in the best way. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is often equated with understanding. 
And it's an attribute of God. God is wisdom. God is wise. It's also part of the image of God in which we are made, brothers and sisters. It is, a, it is one of those communicable attributes of God. Something that God has in innate perfection, which he gives to us in a limited way. He gives us wisdom. We can be wise. Not to, not to the same degree, either quantitatively or qualitatively as God, but we can be wise. And we are called to be wise. We are called to seek and value wisdom. Proverbs 16.16 16 says, How much better to get wisdom than gold. We are to pray for wisdom. James 1.5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We are, thirdly, to love wisdom. Proverbs 4, 6 says, Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. Speaking of wisdom. And we are then to utter wisdom. Psalm thirty-seven thirty says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. We are to give attention to wisdom as Christ's people. We are to set our face towards it, Proverbs 17.4 says. And according to Ephesians 5.15, we are to walk in wisdom. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What then is the prohibition that Paul gives here? He doesn't say don't be wise. He says never be wise in our own sight, in our own estimation. Be wise, but don't be a wise guy. James makes a distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom that is from above. The first is to be rejected. The second, the wisdom from God, which is pure and peaceable and gentle, and it's easy to be entreated, that is to be embraced. We're not to seek or to embrace that earthly wisdom that James talks about, but the wisdom that is from above. So we are to seek, we are to embrace, we are to walk according to that heavenly wisdom which God calls and God gives freely. But we are never, Paul is saying here, to be conceited into thinking that we have all the wisdom, that we have all the answers. But again... Here's that word for the church, humility. Know that true wisdom doesn't come from you. It comes from God. It comes from God's word. Don't think that you are the only one with wisdom. Now, some people are wiser than others. But Paul is saying we should never assume that that's us. The person who is wise in his own eyes seldom is so in the eyes of other people. And seldom is so. And that's the end of Paul's instruction to us in the church regarding how we deal with others in the church. This is Paul's message to us in the church regarding our relationship with others in the church. Genuine love, abhorrence of evil, being glued to the good, family fondness for your church family, zealous, fervent service to God, 
hopeful rejoicing, patience in trouble, perpetual prayer, gracious giving to one another, hospitality to strangers, deep sympathy with one another in the good times and the bad times, unifying thinking among church members, rejecting pride and all kinds of all kinds and embracing the lowest people and the lowest places and the lowest tasks and humility in our own intellect and wisdom. Congregation, let us pray earnestly that God will work all of these in all of us. Now Paul, as I mentioned, still has a few more things to say in this chapter, specifically how we as Christians are to relate to those that are not a part of the church. How do we think? How do we act toward those with whom we do not share a common faith, with those even whom, who would have to be categorized as enemies? That's what we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But for now, let us seek to see these things be true in us and in our congregation to God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we confess that, that this list is so far from being a, a true and perfect and exhaustive description of your church, even of this congregation. But Lord, we, we pray that you are working in us a, a desire to see these, these marks of a Christian to be true of us, to see us demonstrating them in the church toward one another. And Lord, we know we can only do this through the work of your Spirit as he works through the Word. We can only do this by putting to death the, the pride that remains in us and seeing humility take its place. And we pray that you would do that, Lord. Help us to to love one another genuinely in this congregation. Make us a loving church. Lord, I thank you for the, the fact that to a degree we are, but, but improve that, Lord. Increase that, Lord. That we may see one another as close, as close as our family and that we will treat them as such. That you will help us to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.